you will, turn in your Bibles to the 25th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew as we continue our study through the Word. So, you remember that we just finished looking at the 24th chapter of Matthew, and what an incredible chapter that was. You remember it started off with the disciples making a remark about the temple and, and Jesus just stunning them by telling them that not one of those stones is going to remain upon another and immediately that brought about questions from the disciples. When will these things take place and what will be the sign of your coming? And, and so Jesus begins to prophetically lay out now those those circumstances that of the end times, you'll remember that began to talk about wars and rumors of war. The end is not yet. Earthquakes, famine, pestilences, these things are all going to increase. And, and so birth pangs, we're going to see an increase in, in them. And, and then he began to talk about the, the second coming and, and the great tribulation and referred back to Daniel chapter 9. Nine, where when you see the abomination that causes desolation, that and then you are to flee from uh, Jerusalem. And, and so that great tribulation is that second half of the final seven-year period that Daniel talks about in that ninth chapter and corresponds to the judgments that you read there in the book of Revelation that are going to be poured out and, and then went on to talk about the fact that when the second coming happens, that when the Lord returns, it's not going to be a private event. False messiahs are going to rise up. Don't, don't be fooled. Don't be tricked. Don't go chase out to, to, to look, though the Messiah is here, the Messiah is there. As the east as lightning flashes from the east to the west so also will the coming of the son of man be and so jesus christ returning great power great authority and and so we see the second coming of christ and and then with regards to the timing he gave the parable of the fig tree know that when that fig tree puts forth its, its buds, know this, that summer is near. And so the generation that sees these things take place will by no means pass away. And so most believe that that is the event of the regathering of the nation of Israel, 1948. And so we certainly are now within a generation of those events that here the Bible is talking about. And and so we are living in very exciting times and, and no one knows the exact day or hour. And so we talked about the date setters and those people that would declare the actual time of the Lord's return, but that it is going to happen swiftly, unexpectedly, that two people are going to be working in the same office park and one is taken and the other is uh, left behind. And so the the rapture of the church, the next prophetic event to take place. Nothing else needs to transpire before the rapture of the church. We see the earth being prepared now for the Antichrist. We see the ability to communicate. We see the technology. We see the financial underpinnings. We see the alignment of the nations. We see the moral decay in the world around us. We see all of the events that the Word of God teaches 
are going to be transpiring prior to the second coming to the return uh, of the Lord. And so very exciting times as we move into this 25th chapter as, as Jesus now begins to talk about what your state of readiness should be. Now, if you know these things, if you know that the Lord is returning and that he could be returning at any moment, how then shall we live is really the application. This 25th chapter, we're going to see a couple parables that Jesus is really going to force us to examine our own hearts and, and how we are living as it is directed towards the, the generation now that is going to be here when the Lord returns. And so it's going to begin with the parable of the ten virgins, and then we're going to have the parable of the, uh, of the talents, and then ultimately he is going to talk about what happens when he returns at his second coming, and, and that is going to be the judgment of the nations that is going to take place. And so Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 1, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And so here we see that the then and Jesus is talking about his appearing suddenly in great power and glory so the kingdom of heaven the millennial reign of Christ that is going to be set up when Jesus comes and so he likens it now to uh, the wedding feast and and a Jewish wedding, Jewish marriage, there were three stages to it. There, there was first the engagement, and that was normally made between the fathers. The bride and the groom really didn't have a, a part of that, but the, that was the arrangement that the two of them would wed. And then you would have the betrothal. The betrothal was a ceremony, and in that ceremony they exchanged vows to one another, at the end of which they were considered to be legally married. The marriage wasn't consummated. They would return back to their homes for a period of uh, preparation time, and that could take up to a, a year, and uh, normally the groom would then be getting the, uh, the home ready for to receive the bride normally an addition was built onto the father's house and and then what would happen is you would then have the wedding feast the time of the of the celebration would happen and so the groomsmen would depart with the groom to head to the bride's house and and they would come at a time that was not exactly known they would know the day normally but not the hour normally it was in the evening times and so they would come and and they would gather the bride with their bridesmaids and they would make a processional through the city and to the groom's house and and people, no matter what you were doing, if there was a, a, a bridal procession that was heading by the bridal parade, you would join the parade. Everybody would just stop what they were doing. And, and so this, there was a time of great joy and well-wishing and celebration. And, and so you would head to the Father's house, and, and then just the invited guests would enter into the feast, and everybody else at that point would depart. And so the backdrop of Jesus' illustration of the readiness here focuses on on a piece uh, of that wedding feast, and that is on these virgins that are waiting with the bride for the groomsmen and the groom to arrive and then to parade to the groom's house. And so there were 10 of these virgins and, and they had their lamps and they were ready now to meet the bridegroom. Now, verse two, now five of them were wise and five were foolish. 
And those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Now, that word for lamps, there's two words. One is the lamp, the little lamp that you would have inside your house. This is a torch. When they come and arrest Jesus and the soldiers are carrying their torches, this this is the torch. And so it was a, a stick. It had then cloth that was around it, and that cloth would be dipped in the oil, and then the oil would be lit. And so they've got the torches, but they don't have any oil to be able to soak the cloth in and to light it. So uh, we see that outwardly they, they look like they are ready. They're dressed, they have their torch, and, and so they all look alike. But there is a level of preparedness here that we see that five of them had that five of them did not have. And so remember that oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So what you're seeing here is five people who have a, a, an abiding relationship. They have the, uh, the seal. We are, when we get saved, when we invite Jesus Christ into our heart, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so the indwelling of the oil that we have. And so there's five that outwardly look like they're connected. They look like they're saved. They come to church. They sing the songs. They, 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 they profess. They profess a relationship with Christ, but yet inwardly there is no regeneration that has taken place. They, they are not saved. And so here we see this picture of those going through the motions, outwardly appearing, but inwardly they are not changed. And so in 2 Timothy, it says that having a form of godliness, but no spiritual life or power because they do not belong to God. In verse 5, but while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And, and so Jesus here may have been giving a hint that he is not going to be returning as soon as they anticipate. And so when Jesus departs, they believe that Jesus is coming back very soon, very shortly. But here in this parable, he lets them know that, uh, that now it is late into the night. And, and so everybody falls asleep here and now, it's not a delay from the divine perspective, but uh, from the human perspective. And at midnight, a cry was heard, and behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to uh, meet him. And so finally at midnight, the, the bridegroom arrives. Now, at midnight, most people are typically deep asleep, and, and so the bridesmaids uh, also here. But the bridegroom's arrival at that time once again shows the unexpectedness of Christ's return. That was an unusual time for the groom to show up at, at midnight. But what is interesting as we look at this parable is that the children of Israel began their journey out of Egypt at midnight. And rabbinical tradition held that the Messiah would come to the earth at that hour. So interesting that embedded here in this parable is, is the midnight arrival of the, the groom. Verse 7, Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. And so the, 
the cry goes, the groom is here, and, and then there's a great bustle of activity. The, uh, the torches would be lit, and, and as the, the bridesmaids that did not have oil went to light them, but realized now that their, their torches wouldn't light because they didn't have oil, they now asked the others that had the oil to, to lend them some of them, to give it to them, but uh, but the ones that had the oil, they were helpless to be able to provide oil for their friends. The, the, there was no capacity. There was no way that they could give them. They only had enough for their, uh, for their own torches. And, and so here we see that they needed to go and to, and to take care of their own preparations. Our relationship with God must be our own. Somebody else's preparedness, somebody else's relationship with God is not going to be of any help to you when, uh, when the Lord returns. And, and when you have breathed your last breath, whether it is because the, the Lord comes for you or you go to the Lord, there is going to be that the, your time has run out and there is no time now left to, to prepare your heart and your life and your relationship with the Lord. Preparedness of a person's heart, it, it can't be transferred and it can't be shared. And so here is the, the lesson that, that the parable is teaching us. And so afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. And so as the procession now heads out and, and they get to the gate of the, uh, of the father's house, the doors are open to the processional, but now those doors are closed. And, and so the rest of the people that were parading there, they, they disperse away. But we see that the bridesmaids now, they, they come and they knock on the door, and, but their opportunity for service had passed. They were no longer needed and their torches that identified those who could enter in. The gates are closed. And so the, the etiquette of the situation, once those doors are closed, they, they were not opened. And so here we see that, that the Lord says, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. And this statement now represents the rejection of those who, despite outward appearances, they never made the preparation for the, uh, the coming of the Lord. They never made the preparation to step into the presence of, uh, of Christ and into the eternal heaven that is waiting. In verse 13, Jesus says, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, Jesus had said that earlier. We don't know the day or the hour. We know the season. We know that when the bud is put forth, know that summer is close, but no one is going to know that day or that hour. And so, uh, watch, um, therefore. Now, I want you to notice again that watching didn't mean that they were to stay awake. Now, both the foolish and the wise uh, were resting, were sleeping when the Lord came. And that wasn't the point of the story. The point of the story now was to be in a steady state of preparedness. And so the preparation of, uh, of the heart. Now, 
This parable has a, a, an immediate and local meaning, but it has a, a wider and a more universal meaning as well. It's in its immediate significance was directed against the Jews. They were the chosen people of God. Their whole history should have been a preparation for the coming of the Messiah. The, the scriptures foretold it. The prophets had declared it. John the Baptist was the forerunner. The, the nation was to receive now the Messiah, the Lord. But when he comes, we see that they were slumbering, but they had no oil. There was no reception. And so they were unprepared. And therefore, what happens? They were shut out. The doors were closed now to the nation of Israel. And so we see in dramatic form the tragedy of the unpreparedness of the nation of Israel. But now for everybody else, it is the invitation to be ready at the second coming. That was at the first coming. But to be ready at the Lord's second coming, he is coming again and he is going to judge sinners and he is going to reward the righteous and so there will be the foolish and there will be the the prepared there will be the wise when he returns at his second coming so here is the question are you going to be the foolish or are you going to be in the wise which of those two groups are you going to be in when the lord returns Jesus goes on now in a second parable, the parable of the talents, and, and he says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called for his own servants and delivered his goods to them. Now, servants in the ancient world, they could be given incredible responsibility and authority. And so this man, this master is going on a journey and he entrusts his assets now to three of his servants. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. And so and here we see that, and notice that he doesn't give equal amounts, but five and two and one. And so and now he departs and, and a talent. A talent is a, a weight, like a, a pound. You could have a talent of gold or a talent of silver. And so that was a, a, a certain weight here. But also a talent back in those days was said to be worth about 6,000 denarii. And so a, a denarii is a, a day's uh, labor. So uh, that's about 20 years. It's about a million dollars for a talent. And so when he's talking five talents, he's talking $5 million and $2 million and a million dollars. And so these are large sums of money in this parable that Jesus is giving here. So tremendous entrustment of these assets to his servants. And and then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And so we see that there are two that go out and trade with what they had been given. They use the talent that had been given and, and now they increase it the other he just simply digs a hole in it and buries it in the ground. And now, verse 19, after a long time, 
Notice uh, again here the long time. We see that in the parable that the, uh, the, the groom comes at midnight. We see that Jesus now continues in these parables. Now, remember that Jesus is three days away from his crucifixion. And so he is seeking to get the disciples ready and prepared for uh, his departure. And, and, but yet we see over and over in these parables this reference to a, the master was delayed. He was gone a long time, the, the groom coming at midnight. And so all of these things showing that protracted period of time between his first coming and his second coming. And so we have seen 2,000 years have, have transpired. And, and so here he delays after a long time. The Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. This is a, a common business term of settling up the accounts. And, and so at the coming of the Lord, there is going to be a, a reckoning with the servants. The Lord is going to hold us accountable for the things that he had entrusted to us. Now, as believers, we will stand before the Bema Seat of Christ, it teaches us. In Romans chapter 14, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. And so then each of us shall give account of himself to God. So believers come before the Bema seat of Christ and, and sinners come before the great white throne of judgment. And, and so everyone will stand before God to give an account. 2 Corinthians 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now the Bema seat was a place of rewards when they would race and, and have their foot races and all, and the winners would come and they would stand before the Bema seat and they would be given the wreaths and they would be recognized for their achievements and their accomplishments. And so the Bema seat isn't a, a place of punishment, it's just uh, a place, it's like in the Olympics where they have got the platforms that you are now standing uh, upon. And so uh, we will be rewarded for the things that we have done in the building up of the kingdom of God. And and so here we see that just as salvation is an individual relationship with God, so also our service to the Lord is an individual. And, and so the servants, excuse me, are brought in now to give an account to the Lord for what they had done with what their Lord had given to them. And so he who had received, verse 25, talents, came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents beside them. And his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And so here we see the first servant. He had taken his five talents. He had gone and made five more. And, and notice that he is praised. He is praised now for his faithfulness. It was his faithfulness that he is praised for. And we see that he is also rewarded. And so we see the, the faithfulness to be faithful over what God has entrusted to uh, us. And so the Bible says that he who is faithful in the little things to him, more is going to be given. And, and so here in this lifetime, 
It's our proving ground. It is our place of testing. It is a place where character is being developed and and your reward is going to be your service in the millennial reign of Christ. You see, when we return with Christ, we will rule and reign with him. And we are going to be assigned into our responsibilities during that millennial reign. And so your, your faithfulness now is what is going to be entrusted. Your faithfulness is developed and served and you will be rewarded in the millennial reign of Christ. In verse 22, and he also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside them. And his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So, we see with the second one, though he didn't start with the same amount, we see that it was the same praise, it was the same words, it was the same approval. Uh, and so the joy of the Lord enter into that. And his faithfulness is what here we see is highlighted by the Lord. In verse 24, Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. So the third servant comes to him, says, I was uh, afraid of you. He overlooks the responsibility that he had been given, the obligation and the duty that had been assigned to him. And he blames his master and excuses himself. I, I didn't do anything because I was afraid of you. But we see that the excuses are based on a, a misconception. His perception is, is that his master was severe and that he was unfair, very demanding master. But we see that the Lord is anything but that. Jesus is gentle. He is unkind. He says, my yoke is easy. He didn't say I'm hard. He says, my burden is uh, light. And so and here we see that it was a mischaricature of the, uh, of the Lord. But the Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. And so you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. He said, I was afraid. But the Lord says, no, you're lazy. You're lazy. You're wicked because of your wrong concept and your misrepresentation of me. But it's your laziness that kept you from doing anything whatsoever with what I had entrusted you. He takes the talent from him, gives it to the one who had demonstrated faithfulness. And in verse 29, for to everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have abundance, but from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
And so we see that the talent that had been entrusted to that wicked servant, we see that it is taken from him. We see the relationship between the master and the servant is severed. The wicked servant is proven to be worthless, is proven to be unprofitable. And so the, the talent is stripped from him and given to someone who will be faithful. We see this principle also in the Old Testament. We see where Saul was the first king over the nation of Israel. But he was not a faithful king. And so God strips him of his kingship and takes and now gives it to David, a man that was after God's own heart. And so this taking away and giving it to the, the faithful. We see that also in the parable of the landowner back in chapter 21, Jesus said, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And cast the unprofitable servant. We see here this unprofitable servant. Outwardly, once again, he looked like the other servants. He was in the master's house. He had a, a servant-master relationship. But we see that he was not connected with his heart. He did not love the master. The others loved their master. They were faithful to the master. They were faithful with what they had been entrusted with. But we see that this one now, this unworthless and unprofitable servant, he he has no love for the master. We see that he only has fear. God does not want us to have a fear-based relationship with him. God wants a, a love-based relationship. God loves you. God loves you. And God wants to be connected to you in a loving relationship. Love is the basis of our connection to God. Faith is the avenue of approach, but love is the basis. And, and that's the question. Do you love God? That is the, the whole point. You will be faithful to God if you love God. But if you don't love God, if you're afraid of God or you don't know God, then you will not be responding and you will not be faithful to the Lord with the things that he has entrusted to you in your life. Do you love God? That is, that is the big question that this parable ultimately that is underneath this parable. You'll remember that when Jesus was asked, what's the most important of all of the commandments? When, if you look at the Bible, this big, thick book, reduce it down to one instruction. Easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Here we see that, uh, that there was no love of the heart. We see that intellectually he knew that his master and he was the servant. And so he was in a relationship but it was a fear-based relationship. It was not a, a love-based relationship. And, and so here Jesus says, for to everyone who has, more is going to be given. And so God wants us to be using what we have been given, what we have been entrusted with to build the kingdom. Jesus closes uh, here, Matthew closes this chapter with 
Jesus talking now about the, the second coming and, and what is going to happen after the second coming. So the world will have entered into that final seven-year period. That seven-year period here on earth corresponds with the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so we see the, uh, the wedding parable connected now into the, uh, the tribulation that is going on here upon the earth. And so at the end of that seven-year period, Christ is going to return here to establish his millennial reign upon the earth. But what's been happening on the earth, the cataclysmic judgments uh, are going to have taken place. The earth is going to be decimated with the Lord's uh, second coming. And so we see that there are going to be uh, many people that perish. God's wrath has, uh, upon and the judgment has come upon the earth and, and the tribulation now will be over and there will be those who have survived. Not everybody is going to perish during that tribulation. But also, not everybody who survives the tribulation is going to be able and allowed to enter into the millennial reign and hear the kingdom of God. And so there is going to be at the second coming the judgment, the separation between those that have put their faith in Christ that will be allowed to enter into the millennial reign as well as the saints that have returned with him. But there is also going to be the separation from those that have not put their trust, put their faith in Christ. And so uh, here we see that, uh, that Jesus talked about the judgment of his servants, uh, and now we see that there is going to be the judgment uh, upon the world. In verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory, and, and what a moment that is going to be, the glorious return of Christ coming in majesty, coming in power and authority, sitting upon the throne, taking authority over the whole earth, the cessation of all governments, when the kingdoms of this world will now be the kingdom of our Lord and, and the Messiah, and he will reign and establish the throne of David, how glorious that is going to be, verse 32, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so when Christ returns, the, the bride is taken in the rapture. And so these are the, the tribulation saints uh, now, the left behinds that put their trust and are now saved. And so uh, he is going to say, come now and receive you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me and I was naked and you clothed me. And I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. 
And so here we see that he says, come and enter in and inherit what has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You see, the millennial reign is going to be the earth the way that God had intended for it to be. You look around today, and this isn't the way that God had intended the earth to be, the pain and the sorrow and the suffering and, and the death. We See that in the millennial reign, the lion is going to lie down with the lamb and there will be no sickness and no disease. And, and so the earth is going to be governed in the way that God had intended it to be governed. In verse 37, and then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So the church is the body of Christ. And so here he is saying that these actions you did unto me. And they said, but when did we see you, Lord? And so he is talking about people's relationship to the church. And so people that love the church and Christians show that they love the Lord. And those that are opposed to and antagonistic towards the, the church and God's people show that they are opposed to God. And so here we see that, uh, that Jesus is telling them, them, that, uh, that they didn't know that they were doing it unto him, but the body of Christ, uh, this uh, is who he isn't talking about. And so when you did it to the least of these, you, uh, you did it to me. And so here again, we see the vertical and the horizontal. We see that we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then out of that love, the overflow extends outward to those that are around us. And so the two platforms, the two levels of love. And then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me, and naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And so this was their attitude towards the, uh, the church. They were against the believers. They were against the church. They were against the morality. They were declaring there's no such thing as truth and we can live any way that we want to live. And and so they were antagonistic and in opposition to God's representatives here upon the earth. The church is God's representation here upon the earth. And so the attitude towards the church represents the attitude towards God. And so we see that, that Jesus now declares to them that they're unkind actions. And then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? Remember Saul of Tarsus? Remember Saul who becomes Paul, the great apostle? And remember how he is persecuting Christians, going into people's houses, arresting them and dragging them out. And as Saul is on his way to Damascus, Jesus confronts him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me. 
Because when you're persecuting the body, you're persecuting Jesus. And so here it is the exact same thing. They're saying, when did we see you in prison? When did we see you sick or hungry or tired? And, and then they will also answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so we see here that Jesus now is, is talking about everybody's future, about their relationship to him, that there is a, a day of judgment, there is a day of, of reckoning and coming. And, and so it is possible that a person can be in church, but they have no oil for their lamp. They look outwardly like everybody else. They sing the songs they attend, but there is no love. There is no connection to God whatsoever. And so just being in church is not a, a guarantee that you're going to be in the kingdom of God. And so the big difference between Entrance into the church and entering into the, uh, the kingdom of God. And Jesus here talks about that. As we close our study here on this 25th chapter, a chapter about preparedness, a chapter about relationship, a chapter about sheeps and goats, about wise virgins and foolish virgins. And I wanted to draw our attention to verse 14 where where it says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And the goods were those talents that he now gives, five to one, two to another, one to another. And it's interesting because the talent just being a weight, it's, a, it's an ambiguous term here, but I think that it's ambiguous because it was intentional. It means that there are many different applications for that, <laughs> that talent. And, and I know that in my own life, that it was about 35 years ago that, that I was sitting in Costa Mesa underneath Pastor Chuck Smith, and he was teaching this exact passage. And he is talking about the, the parable of the talent. And it was the first time in my life that I experienced what, what I would say was almost an audible voice of where God spoke to me. I, I was stunned by it. I'm just a believer sitting in service, have my Bible reading. And, and Pastor Chuck talked about the parable of the talents. And, and the Lord asked me a question. He said to me, when are you going to let me use your talent? And I was like, oh my gosh. And I knew exactly what the Lord was talking about. I knew exactly what he was talking about. He wasn't talking about my gold. He wasn't talking about a talent of, of money. It was explained. Pastor Chuck is explaining the different amounts in the, in the faithfulness. But that's not what the Lord was talking to me about. He was talking about the gift that God had placed inside of me. My father was a very successful man. 
he rose up through the accounting, got his accounting degree, and, and then into auditing, and then into building systems. And then he partnered with IBM when IBM technology first came out, and using the computer to be able to computerize warehouses and selections, and just launched his career. And my dad became an incredibly successful man. Living underneath my successful father, I wanted to be successful when, uh, when I grew up. And, uh, and so I thought that I would travel the same path as my father. And, and I went into business school. And uh, first I wanted to be a doctor, but then I wanted to be a businessman. And so I switched over to a business school. And I majored in accounting. And I started taking accounting classes. And I hate accounting. <laughs> I mean, it is the most boring thing in the entire world. I even got a job as a bookkeeper, and I remember just like falling asleep trying to write these things, balance every single little pen. It was for me, it was the driest, worst possible. You know, I'm, I have nothing against accountants. If you're an accountant, praise the Lord, I admire you. You know, because. I was not cut from that cloth at all. I could not be locked up with a bunch of receipts and papers and ledgers and books and just organize this uh, all of my life. It wasn't the gift that I had that was inside of me. The gift that God had given to me was the ability to explain things. That, that was the gift. That was the gift that I used as, a, as an older brother to my younger brothers and sisters, teaching them how to throw and catch and to play. And, and anything that I learned, I would break it down into its smaller components and pass it along. That, that was the gift. I used that gift my entire life in every arena. It, it, it just operated through me. It was a part of who I am. It isn't something that, that I tried to do. It was something that was a gift that was inside of me. And so in business, that was what I, I ended up leaning towards. And, and that made me successful in the world, that ability to transfer information and to be able to communicate that information. I made a, a great living using that gift. And when the Lord said to me, when are you going to let me use your talent? I knew exactly what he was talking about. I began to recognize and understand that that was a talent that he had placed inside of me. I had been using it my whole life. But he was asking me, when am I going to get a chance to use that gift that I placed inside of you? And that was the, <laughs> that was the beginning, the first time <laughs> that I began to recognize and to, and to understand that, that there might be a, a, a calling in my life that God wants to use the gift that he has placed inside of me. And what I've come to recognize and to understand is that God wants to use all of our gifts. You see, each and every one of us, we have a different gift. You have a, a different gift. You have the, the gift is something that makes you you. You know, for some people it's cleaning. They love to clean. They just like everything clean. They love, and that is who they are. They, they, for other people it's organizing. They have their dark socks in one row. They have their whites in another. They've got their big and their small. And they, they just love to organize. Whenever they come into a mess, they want to see it all cleaned up and ordered. They have the gift of, uh, of organization. Others, it's the gift of helps. They just love to help people. They just want to be a part of the team. They don't want to lead. Other people, they're bossy. You ever met a boss? They have the gift of leadership. <laughs> they, you know, that is a gift. And they're just like, they're natural born leaders. And, and so every single one of us, 
We, we have got the, the gift that God placed to, in, inside of you, but ultimately he placed it inside of you to be able to contribute it to the body of Christ. You see, the, the church is the place, the building of the kingdom is the place that God placed that gift inside. You get to use it in your own life, but God wants to bring it to the house of the Lord to be able to now function together. That's the way that the body of Christ works. And, and so it is an absolute joy to be able to do what you love to do anyways, and then you do it for the Lord. It's not even work. It's not even serving. It's that opportunity to, to exercise what you, what you love to do already. But now, how can you take, here's the question I want you to ponder, how can you take what you love to do already and now do it for the Lord? And now do it to, to contribute to the, to the kingdom and, and participate now in, in blessing the, the body of Christ. You see, the body of Christ is the Lord. So when you do it for the body, you've done it now for the Lord. And you, and you can do it on behalf of the Lord and even to those that are outside of the, uh, the body of Christ. But, but it is that recognition that you were created by God, designed by God, given the gifts that are inside of you to be able to now bring glory to God. And you do that by serving the, the body of Christ and using your gift. And so follow your gift. Identify your gift. What do you love to do? And now Find a way to use that here. Don't bury it in the ground. Take now and use it to be able to bring glory to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, help us to find a place, uh, Lord, to be able to use our stewardship of the gifts that, uh, that we have been given, to be able to to build the body of Christ, to build the kingdom, to bring it forwards. And, and so, Lord, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.